0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, Along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Today, God willing, we will finish the series on Ephesians and Colossians, and we will close the book of Colossians this morning. So turn to Colossians chapter 4. I hope that you have seen, as we've been going through Colossians, the similarities between Ephesians and Colossians. And even the layout of the letters is so very similar, the same way that the first couple of chapters in the book of Ephesians are heavy-duty doctrine, and then he moves on into the imperatives, how should we live, based on what we know from the doctrine. He's done the same thing in the book of Colossians in the first couple of chapters, We learned about God's sovereignty and how all things were made by him and for him. And how our completion, our eternal completion, our spiritual fullness is accomplished in him and through him. And then knowing that all of chapter 3 was how you should behave. How you should deal with each other. How you should put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth, not to lie to each other and not to give in to your old self and your old practices. And then he got into relationships and how we should deal with each other within the church, wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves, masters, how we all within the church should be patient with one another and be loving and kind to each other, sacrificially loving one another. But then in chapter 4, starting in verse 2, he gets to one of the most common themes in all Pauline literature, which is the necessity of prayer. I think it is interesting that he held this particular point until right at the end of the letter. It's almost like he wants to stress this. Okay, I've told you details about how to behave. I've told you details about how to deal with each other. But above all that, I just want to plant in your head the necessity of praying. We here at GCA are convinced of what is known as sovereign grace theology. Sovereign grace theology is a nickname for reformed theology. Sometimes it goes by the nickname Calvinism. And part of the bedrock principle of that theology is that God is sovereign. He's in charge of everything. And he knew, he decided, he determined what he was going to do before he ever did it. The way the Bible puts it, known unto God are all his ways from the beginning. And then we also read that God does not change. There's no variableness, no shadow of turning. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if someone is going to criticize the theology that we believe, oftentimes they will attack us right here. And they'll say, well, you know, Paul says, Jesus says, the whole Bible says that you ought to pray, but you, you Calvinists, (laughs) you Calvinists, you say that God does not change, cannot change, therefore, why would you pray to a God who cannot change and who does not change and who is not being swayed by your prayers? Why would you pray to a sovereign God? The quick answer to that question is why would you pray to a God who's not sovereign? That God can't do anything for you, He's too busy respecting your free will. And that's kind of where the whole argument comes down. It comes down to who has the actual will. Who actually accomplishes his will? Is it fallen man, or is it sovereign God? Because only one of those two wills is going to be accomplished. They can't both have free wills. I was driving through Smyrna, and right up the street here, I saw a sign by the side of the road advertising the upcoming Halloween festival that a local church was having, they didn't call it Halloween, they called it their fall festival, and they advertised that there were going to be magicians, and jugglers, and candy, and it was a church I had never heard of before. I saw the sign, and of course, I'm always curious about what people are saying within the church, what are people teaching, and so when I come across a new church, I go look them up on the internet to find out what they are about, I don't like to name names, but the sign said that they were a Baptist church and that they were in Rutherford County. So it's a Rutherford County Baptist Church.org. Three weeks ago, perhaps four, the message that I listened to was why I disagree with all five points of Calvinism. Part of the argument of why this particular pastor disagreed with all the five points was because free will, doggone it. Me, what I think, my will, my determination. And he kept inserting his supposed free will into every single argument he made about every single point of the doctrines of grace. So that really is ground zero when it comes to your theology. At some point, you have to determine whose will is going to stand. Is it going to be the will of God, or is it going to be your individual will? Because you can't both have complete freedom to do whatever you want. One of those two wills has to bend to the other. Either God has to bend to what you want to do, what you decide, or you are going to bend to the sovereign God and his unchanging will. That is why you pray to a sovereign God. Because the activity of praying to a sovereign God helps conform your will, your thinking, your theology to the recognition of the God who you are worshiping. You are putting yourself in the dust in front of him you are recognizing that he is in complete control and that you have no power whatsoever. If you want to prove that, change even one thing that has happened in the last 20 months in the world. A year ago, March, nobody saw this coming. A year ago, March, everybody was still just walking through their lives thinking that life was always going to be the same old way. And then March happened, and then COVID happened, and then the whole world was turned upside down, and there wasn't a thing you could do about it, even though it was massively inconvenient for you. And yet there was nothing you could do about it. The God who is sovereign in heaven is the God who said that there were going to be trials, tribulations, troubles in this lifetime. And that he was going to bring about famines and pestilences and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places. He said he was going to do that. So then it's no surprise that he's actually doing it. And you didn't get a vote. You don't get a choice. It's just happening. So, okay, quick question. In that one particular category, whose will won out? God's will. God's will won out. So why do you go pray to a sovereign God if, in fact, he is the unchanging sovereign Lord of the universe? The first and most obvious answer textually is that we learn more about the absolute sovereignty of God from the apostle Paul than we learn from just about anyone else in the Bible. Paul is the great expositor of the Old Testament, demonstrating to us that through the whole of the Bible, God has always represented himself as absolutely sovereign and in control. The oldest book in the Old Testament is the book of Job. And the entire last section of the book of Job is God showing up and saying, where were you when I did everything? And then God lists all the things he does that human beings don't do. That is God arguing for his own sovereignty. That's the oldest book in the Bible. The newest book in the Bible is the one we're going to begin next week. And in it are the repeated declarations of an absolutely sovereign, holy God. From beginning to end, the Bible says over and over, that God is absolutely sovereign. And we see that theology systematized most perfectly by the Apostle Paul. And the same Apostle Paul who taught us that theology is the exact same Apostle Paul who says, devote yourself to prayer. So why do we pray to a sovereign God? Because the sovereign God says to. He tells us to pray to him. And so there has to be a value to praying to him. Otherwise, sovereign God would not tell us to constantly pray to him. Stay connected to him. Keep talking to him. Keep going to him time after time. And letting him know that you are dependent on him through all of the things that you are asking him. The word prayer... The Greek word just means to ask toward. And that's what we're doing is going to God and asking him for the various things that we need. I find it so fascinating that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount started by saying your father in heaven knows what things you have need of. Okay, that's the sovereignty part. Your father in heaven knows what you need. He knows you need food. He knows you need something to wear. He knows that you have all of these necessities, all these needs because you are human. And he made you that way and he understands you more intimately than you understand yourself. He knows all that. He knows what things you have need of. And then Jesus says, now go ask him. He knows what you need, and it's the Father's good pleasure to give you what you need in life. And yet, the instruction from Jesus is, go ask him now. And so those two concepts of an absolutely sovereign God and the necessity that we pray to him cannot be contradictory because both those ideas came from the mouth of the very Lord Jesus. He's the one, and boy, if anybody understood sovereignty, the one who said to his apostles, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, that's somebody who would understand sovereignty. And yet, he who understood so much about God and God's plan for this world and God's intention and divine forethought about what's going to happen in this world and in human history, that same Jesus said to us, go pray, go pray constantly, go pray continually to God, the sovereign one. Okay, so my point is, if Jesus, who would know that much about sovereignty, if Paul, who knew that much about sovereignty, would also tell you, go pray, they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the two concepts are not contradictory, despite what may come out of the pulpit of any church anywhere in Rutherford County. God is sovereign, and we are told to pray to him. In fact, in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. That's the NASB rendering of it. What Paul wrote was, be continual, be constant in it. Devote yourself to it. Don't reach the point where you think you're all prayed up. Don't reach the point where you say, okay, I've prayed, I think I've prayed enough. Paul says pray continually. Constantly in prayer. Because, again, that not only demonstrates to God that you recognize that everything you are and everything you have is a gift from the Father of lights who blesses you with all these things, but it is a way of staying connected to that God. Because everything in this world, everything in this world, everything in this world, have I emphasized the everything in this world yet? Everything, everything in this silly, stupid, God-forsaken, sinful world is trying to dissuade you from your faith in God and trying to drive a wedge between you and God. The word devil is the Greek diabolos. And it means the thing that you use to split wood. It's the divider. It's the thing that would separate you from God. Satan and this satanic world that we live in is doing its dead level best to separate you from God. And so it is necessary that you stay connected to God. And prayer is the best way to do that. Recognizing that every single thing that happens in your life has come to you through nail-scarred hands, and recognizing that every gift you have, every good and perfect gift came down to you from the Father of Lights. Recognizing and admitting to him constantly over and over again with every breath, saying to him, I recognize that without you, I don't know my own name. Without you, I don't get the next breath. Without you, I don't have eternity in splendor, in comfort, in peace. You have so much dependence on God that it is necessary for you to stay connected to God in everything. There's nothing you can name in your life that you should not be praying about. I've heard people through the years say, I find it hard to pray because I don't know what to pray about. I think we all kind of go through that struggle. I don't know what to pray about. And, Gee, I prayed about that last week. And The fact is, you pray about everything. You devote yourself to prayer. And I dare you, name something right now that you shouldn't hand over to God on a constant basis. That's a tough one. So not only does Paul say, devote yourself to prayer, but then I really like the phrase, keeping alert in it, which is a single Greek word, keeping alert in it, which is, by the way, a, a present tense participle. It means it's never really done. It's, it's a constant practice. It's part of this devoting yourself to prayer. But then being conscious of it, not just unconscious praying. That's why Jesus said when you pray, don't use vain repetition as the heathen do. Instead, when you pray, and then he gave the model prayer. And then the church at large turned the model prayer into vain repetition. But he said, when you pray, don't just do it unconsciously. Don't do it by rote. Don't do it. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Growing up in the Lutheran household that I grew up in, we were taught as kids, sitting around the kitchen table, that before we ate dinner, we should always say a prayer. Okay, that's good. That's all good. But then the prayer we would pray, see how many of you recognize this, the prayer we would pray was, come Lord Jesus and be our guest and let this food to us be blessed. Amen. Oh, we said that every night for years. Years. At one point as a kid, I thought that that was the dinner bell. You know, first we say this, and then food appears. And so this is worth saying. Paul says, don't be like that. Don't do that. Don't go to God. Don't by rote repetition say things to God thinking that that is actual praying. Instead, stay alert in it, devote yourself to it. And then once again, Paul brings up Thanksgiving. One more time, Paul says, whatever it is you do, whether it's with each other, and especially when it's toward God, always be thankful. How many times have we seen Paul repeat this attitude of thanksgiving? So if you think you've got nothing to pray about, go say thank you. How fortunate are you? And so go say thank you to God. Devote yourself to prayer keeping alert in it, with this attitude of thanksgiving. Here, if you want some sense of what Paul is describing here, if you look down just a few verses, verse 12, speaking of Epaphras, who is the one who most likely founded the church there at Colossae, we know that the church met in his house, And he was there with Paul, and while he was there in Rome with Paul, he prayed for the church that he was so intimately connected to. But listen to the way that Paul describes his prayer. Epaphras, who is one of your number, he's part of your group, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, there's that slave language again, he sends you his greetings Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. I told you the last time that we came across this word. It is agonizomai. It is the word from which we get the word agonize. The way that I described the word to you was I said it's the way an Olympic runner is running when he's coming in second. He's trying his best at that last moment to just beat that last guy. He's giving it everything he's got. If he's got any more strength in him, he's pouring it out at that moment because, you know, the guy in first knows he's got it. I'm first. Okay. He's not agonizing the way the guy is who's second. And so that's why I made emphasis of the second guy. He is working for all he is worth. He is striving to reach that goal. That's the word Paul picked up and said, that's the way Epaphras prays for you. He agonizes over you. He doesn't just mention you in passing. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, check in with that church that I started in Colossae. He prayed agonizomai, translated here as laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Okay, so let's combine those two concepts again. Christ is in the process of building his church. The church at Colossae belongs to Christ. Even though Epaphras may have been the person who brought the gospel to the church at Colossae and has the church meeting in his house, If he understands the theology of Paul, which we have every indication that he does, then he knows that God is absolutely sovereign and that the church belongs to Christ. So why is he laboring over the church? Why is he agonizing over the church? I mean, after all, God's sovereign. God's got it. After all, it belongs to Christ. Christ is sovereign. He's got it. And yet the way that he is praying, he prays earnestly And then Paul even tells us a bit of the content of those prayers. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers so that you may stand complete and fully assured in the will of God. So there's the content of the prayers that Epaphras is praying for this church. He is praying that they are going to be complete in Christ. They are going to understand the doctrine of Christ. They're not going to have any missing elements in their relationship with Christ, that they are going to be full, they are going to be complete. The word in the NASB is translated perfect. And that they would stand fully assured in the will of God. How are you going to stand fully assured in the word of God? Well, that's only if you know the word of God. And so someone has to teach within the church what the word of God is so that you can stand fully assured in the will of God, and that Epaphras prayed for earnestly, labored over it, agonized over it. Why? Because he founded the church, and he's not there. He's in Rome with Paul. So the only thing he can do is pray for the well-being of that church, and that's the degree to which he loved them. That's the degree to which he cared about them. That he would go to God and pray repeatedly, constantly, agonizing that God himself would protect that church. So that gives you some kind of indication what kind of prayer Paul is talking about. When he says to stay alert in prayer, he's talking about this kind of petitioning God. This kind of asking toward God. This kind of recognition of the dependence on God. Back to verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And then Paul who knows so much about the sovereignty of God. Paul who has delivered so much sound doctrine about the sovereignty of God to the church, that same Paul then asks for prayer for himself, which I find so interesting. He doesn't say, don't worry, Jesus has got me. Don't worry, God has already told me that I'm going to Rome and I'm doing that, and so I'm fine, I'm in the will of God, don't worry about me. Instead, look what he asks for. Praying at the same time, For us as well. When you pray, when you're devoted to your prayer, when you're alert in your prayer, pray for us, not for our well being. And that to me is again fascinating that Paul doesn't say, Pray that my wounds heal up quickly. He doesn't say, Pray for me and my failing eyesight. Pray that God would do some kind of miracle and deliver me from this prison. None of that. He doesn't ask for that. Instead, he prays for more opportunity to spread the word of Christ. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word. That's amazing to me. I know I keep using adjectives like, wow, that's amazing. But but it just is. It's astounding to me because if I'm Paul and I've been beaten and I've been stoned and I've been shipwrecked and I'm in prison and now there's a church of people who care about me, I'm thinking I'm going to be asking them, when you pray for me, pray that I get some comfort in my body. Pray that I get some deliverance from this imprisonment. And instead what he prays is, that sovereign God would open up even more opportunities for me to preach the word. Okay, well, that also helps us in our concepts of evangelism. Because Paul never stood on a street corner and just accosted passerbys, beat people over the head with the Bible, and screamed, have you made your peace with Jesus yet today? He just, he never did that. But knowing that God is absolutely sovereign, he wants prayer made to that sovereign God that that sovereign God would open up opportunities to say more about that sovereign God. So who's in charge? It's still God. It's still God who creates the opportunities even for our evangelistic enterprises. The opportunity to talk about Christ is a gift from Christ. Because he knows what he's doing, he's sovereign over everything, and he's the one who has to open people's hearts to understand it, and he is the one who provides both the end result and the means to get to the end result, and the means to get there is prayer for open opportunities to say more about you. Am I making any sense up here? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure you were tracking with me praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak the mystery of Christ. So interesting again that he would refer to the mystery of Christ. Among the Jews, that was indeed a mystery. You know that everywhere that Paul went into every city that he went to, he went to the Jew first, he went to the synagogues first. And then he would go to the Gentiles. To the Jews, they would have the whole Old Testament. They would have the scripture. And though it was right in front of them, and even though it declared everything that Christ was to do when he got here, even though Jesus of Nazareth accomplished all those things, they would not have understood the idea that Messiah was going to come and die. They didn't understand that Christ was going to come to the earth, not set up the kingdom immediately, but rather was going to be turned over to the Gentiles, that he was going to suffer and die and then go off into heaven and then return later to accomplish the kingdom. They didn't get all of that yet, and Paul has proven over and over and over again that that's what the scripture says. That's what the scripture declares. And yet it was such a mystery that it was hidden in plain sight. It was right there in their scripture and they didn't get it. It was a mystery to them. And so Paul wants even more opportunity to declare that mystery of Christ to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Gentiles, this is all mysterious. This is all the Jewish religion that considered us dogs now telling us that we can have eternal peace with Yahweh Through his son, Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, we couldn't have known any of that had Paul not told us about it, had the Bible not declared it to us. God sent an apostle to the Gentiles so that we could know that, because prior to that, it was a mystery. And so Paul says, pray to God that I will have more opportunities to open his word to people who still don't see it, who still don't get it, so that I can preach the mystery of Christ so that they can be saved. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned in order... This is part of that praying, praying so that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Not only does Paul ask for the opportunity, but then he says, when the opportunity arises, pray to God that he would give me proper words to be able to convey the truth to whoever I'm speaking to, to make the most of that opportunity in order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Paul is very convinced that when he has the opportunity to speak the gospel to anybody, that he ought to speak it clearly. In other words, he doesn't want to convolute it. He doesn't want to add all the extra trappings that might make him look good, or that might attract disciples to himself. He wants to preach Christ, all Christ and only Christ and he wants to preach those words that advance the cause of Christ and not the words that would advance himself. Because he says right here, in order that I could make it clear the way I ought to. I ought to clearly say what the gospel is, the mystery of Christ. So with all of that, In his intention, here he is, the strongest preacher of grace in the first century, the man who wrote, what, two-thirds of the New Testament? I'm not good at math. He, He wrote a lot of letters for the New Testament. He was the primary theologian for the church. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, and here he is asking the church that they would pray that he has the strength, that he has the ability to do the job that he's already doing, to do the very thing that he's already accomplishing, which means that he recognizes that everything he has done and everything he's going to do is all in the hands of a sovereign God, and that's why you pray to a sovereign God. There, I brought it around again. Devote yourselves, says verse 2 Devote yourselves, be serious about this thing, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. And now he returns to speaking to them about them having opportunities to speak when you have the opportunity to speak to someone who the translation says is on the outside someone who is not a Christian when you have the opportunity to evangelize somebody conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders the difference between knowledge and wisdom and I know I've said this a few times Knowledge is the accumulation of information that you have available in your mind, at your fingertips, at the tip of your tongue. The information is in your head. It's the accumulation of information. That's knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. And so Paul says, when you speak, make sure That when you speak to outsiders, unbelievers, that you conduct yourself with wisdom. Think about what you're doing. Think about how you're acting. Think about how you are representing Christ. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ on planet earth. Make sure that your behavior is such that they're not able to denigrate Christ because of you. Act with wisdom. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That phrase, making the most of the opportunity, means that when you're speaking to someone who is not Christian, in that moment, in that very instant, there is an opportunity laid in front of you by a sovereign God. And so then use that opportunity in a wise way, in a careful way. Represent Christ appropriately. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, and let your speech, let the things that you say at that moment be full of grace, because that is the essence of what we are promoting. Paul says that the ministry of Christianity is the ministry of reconciliation, We are calling men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled with their sovereign maker. And so do that because it's serious business, but do that with grace. Since you're teaching grace, since you're telling grace, since you're promoting grace, then people ought to be able to see grace in you, in the way that you yourself behave, in the way that you speak, in the words that you choose to use. And so he also says seasoned, as it were, with salt. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The same way that salt is a preservative, Paul has just drawn a one-for-one equation and said that grace is a preservative in your language. When you talk to other people about the things of Christ, season your language with grace. Let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned, as it were, with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Every situation is different. You're not going to be able to memorize one standard evangelistic technique and think that you can always use this phrase every time you meet an unbeliever and it will draw them to make a decision. Instead, every situation is unique, just as the people are unique, just as that moment, just as that opportunity is unique. And so you pray to God that he's going to give you appropriate words. You're going to demonstrate grace because he is a gracious God who is calling people graciously to himself to reconcile sinner and their maker. And so make sure that you represent, that you speak with grace, and so that you know how you should respond to each person okay everything I have said so far today is Paul's final instruction to the church and then starting at verse 7 he's going to close the letter as to all my affairs Tychicus our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information it is Tychicus as I've said before who is carrying these letters and he is going to as part of his ambassadorship from Paul he's going to go tell them how Paul is doing for I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about our circumstances and so that he may encourage your hearts Paul is sending a message of encouragement as we have seen in these letters And he is sending this letter of encouragement to people who know all the beatings that he has taken, who know that he's imprisoned, who know the hardships that he's lived with, and yet he writes them these letters of encouragement and constancy and faith and peace and grace and kindness. And so I think getting these letters would in fact be an encouragement to their hearts despite the circumstances. So they're going to know about Paul's circumstances. Yes, he got beaten again. Yes, he's still in prison. Yes, he's under house arrest. Yeah, Paul, he's in chains. But also, Paul has you on his heart. And Paul cares more about the gospel of Christ and the spread of the grace of God than he cares about his own personal being. And so as they get these letters, not only are they going to hear about the circumstances, but despite the circumstances, they're going to learn encouragement. Because Paul's purpose in writing to them and sending them Tychicus is to encourage their hearts. So despite our circumstances, despite what we may be going through, despite our hardships, despite the difficulties of this life, we, the Christians, we who have a united spirit, who share a common salvation and a common faith, we ought to speak in a way that is not only gracious, but that is encouraging to one another. We ought to come alongside each other and lift each other up, because if Paul could do it under the circumstances Paul was in, you're still not under those circumstances. Therefore, I think it's a good example of how we ought to care for one another, lift up one another, and encourage each other. I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him is Onesimus. We talked about Onesimus extensively last week, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. That's exactly right. He's from Colossae. And they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. We have no idea what those instructions are. It may be that Tychicus is carrying those instructions. And given Mark's checkered history, and the fact that he had once abandoned Paul, I can see why the church would kind of look askance at Mark and say, well, now wait a minute. You're the one who abandoned Paul earlier. So I think it's necessary that Paul here has gone out of the way to say, I'm going to send you instruction about Mark. And if he comes to you, welcome him. He is, after all, part of the Christian faith. He is part of the larger church. Don't treat him unkindly because of the way he treated me. And as you're going to see in a moment, Mark and Paul were restored to each other. Verse 11, and also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. So those are the three Jews that he has mentioned, Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus, who is called Justice. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring for you in his prayers, so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness. In other words, I've seen him do this. I've heard his prayers. I know that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Tom, if you would, look up 2 Timothy chapter 4 for sake of time. 2 Timothy chapter 4, you're going to read verses 9 to 12. Because Paul in verse 14 mentions, Luke, our beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Luke is almost always there with Paul as Paul has gone through these various things. Luke is the biographer who has written so much of this, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke that he wrote, and also the book of Acts. And so we know so much about the early ministry of Paul because of Luke. Luke is there with him again in Rome. The beloved physician sends you greetings. And also Demas. So it's basically, oh, and Demas says hi. Demas got lumped in here with Epaphras and with Mark and with Aristarchus and with Jesus who's called justice, all of these people who turned out to be this great encouragement to Paul. And you could just read past the name Demas and think, well, that's a good guy too. That's a fellow who's hanging right in there with Paul. But when Paul, at the end of his ministry, writes to Timothy one more time, in 2 Timothy, he says this about Demas. If you would, Tom.
2: Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica.
1: Demas loved this present world and has deserted me. Not, not just took a trip to Thessalonica, just deserted me. Keep reading.
2: Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus, to Delamedia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus.
1: All these same names, all these same people, all these folks who were with Paul through all of this, there we hear that he says, send Mark to me, because Mark is useful to me. So when Paul is trying to compliment people here at the end of the book of Colossians, one of the best things he can say about them is, they were an encouragement to me. They were a help to me. And ultimately, he says about Mark, send Mark to me. He's a help to me. He's an encouragement to me. So this guy, Demas, sadly loved this present world and abandoned Paul. But at this moment, He was there in Rome as Paul was writing this letter. Had not yet left. And then we know nothing else about Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also greet Nympha and the church that is in her house. So apparently the church in Laodicea was in the house of a person named Nympha. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. In my introduction to the book of Colossians, I told you, and I think I mentioned it in the introduction to the book of Ephesus, that that probably is that letter to the Laodiceans because it was meant to be an encyclical to the churches in that area. So when you read this letter, also get that letter from the Laodiceans, read both of them, share your letter with them. He intended that these letters be read by the churches so that they could learn the doctrine of Christ that was written in both of these letters, verse 17, and say to Archippus, do you remember who Archippus is? He is the son of Epaphras. Where's Epaphras? He's in Rome with Paul. Who's leading the church? Back in Colossae, apparently it's Archippus. And so Paul says, Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord, so that you may fulfill it. So here is Paul being an encouragement to this young man who has the care of the church that was established and taught by his father. And now the weight of all that has fallen on this young man. And so Paul says to him to take heed of the ministry which has been given to him by the Lord so that he would fulfill the responsibilities that have been given to him. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. The reason that is important, Paul always mentions it, you see it especially in like the book of Galatians, he says, you see what large letters I'm writing with. There is every indication that Paul was having all kinds of eye trouble, that he was slowly going blind, maybe as a result of the various diseases that he dealt with as he moved through the Middle East and up into ultimately Rome. But he said to the Galatians, Your love for me was such that if it were possible, you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me. Why would he say that unless he was having problems with his eyes? And then you combine that with the fact that Paul says, look even though I used a secretary, even though I used an amanuensis, even though it was probably Luke or somebody like that, somebody educated who actually put pen to paper and wrote these things down, Paul dictated them, and then to prove that they were actually from Paul, Paul would sign those letters. And he would sign them with large letters, apparently because he couldn't see very well. So Paul takes the time to say, I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand. And that's a big deal. Paul is demonstrating that he cares for them so much that he wants them to know that this letter comes right from him. Remember my imprisonment. And then he ends with the words that I think summarize the ministry of Paul better than any other phrase. Grace be with you. That's why he said, let your language be salted with grace. That's why his entire theology is about grace. That's why here we teach sovereign grace. Because if God is not gracious to us, we got nothing. If God judges us on the basis of who we are and what we've done, we got nothing. In the end, it's all about grace because a very gracious God constructed a very gracious plan by which he very graciously saved sinners like us. You can see why Paul, writing to churches, would say grace. It's about grace. Because it is. Because it is about grace. In the end, it's all about grace. It can't be about working your way toward having God accept you because you were so good or so appropriate or so upright it all has to be grace and so however many months ago that we began looking at the letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians Paul started the Ephesian letter with grace and he ended the Colossian letter with grace and those are bookends to everything else that Paul has taught us So if you've learned anything through this extensive study through these two books, if you've come away with nothing else, come away with grace. Grace from God, that is your salvation, and as a consequence, be gracious to each other. Be kind to each other. Take care of each other. Speak with grace. Talk of grace. Behave with grace. That is the Pauline teaching to the church. There's a song, and I don't know that I know the chords to it. But we used to sing it at the Sovereign Grace Conference every year. On the last night, before we would all go home, we would all sing this song together, and oh, it used to rattle the rafters and raise the roof of Main Street Baptist Church. And one of the verses was, Speak of grace, speak of grace, speak of sovereign grace. And if I never, ever see you anymore, speak of grace, speak of grace, speak of sovereign grace, and I'll see you on the other shore.
2: Amen. I'm done. Let's see you want to bring you <laughs>